Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In August of 2017, Sandra Jean Melgar was convicted in a Harris County courtroom for the murder of her husband. Following the conviction, the same jury that voted to convict Sandy returned to the deliberation room to decide on her sentence. The result was 27 years in TDCJ. Bailiffs allowed Sandy to hug her daughter Liz one last time before being escorted out of the courtroom and sent away to prison. Over the last five months, we've examined several elements of the state's case against Sandy. We've evaluated the crime scene investigation, the police interrogations, the forensic evidence found on the scene, Jim Melgar's autopsy, the blood spatter analysis, the computer forensics, misstatements by the prosecutor, and we've covered the items that were known to be missing from the Melgar's home after Jim's murder. We've compared Jim's injuries to Sandy's lack of injuries. We've heard from FBI profilers Jim Clemente and Jim Fitzgerald. And after all of that, we've yet to find a single item of evidence that incriminates Sandy Melgar. Sandy showed no signs of any injuries consistent with engaging in a fight like the one that ended Jim Melgar's life. She didn't have a trace of blood or Jim's DNA on her body, nor did Jim have any of her DNA on his body. The crime scene showed no evidence of anyone cleaning up on the scene, nor was there any evidence that Sandy had left and then returned. There are items missing, documented with receipts and instruction manuals that police never accounted for. And we've identified several other similar home invasions that had occurred near the Melgar's home within a year of Jim's murder. Profiler Jim Clemente assessed the scene as a home invasion gone wrong and identified several elements of the crime scene as what he referred to as counter-indications of staging. Then we heard from forensic linguist Jim Fitzgerald, who concluded that Sandy showed no signs of deception during her police interrogations. In a nutshell, so far, I don't see a single piece of evidence in this case that even comes close to implicating Sandy. And that leads me to the topic of today's episode. Point of error number one in Sandy's recently filed direct appeal brief. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. 
Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Skystream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed 10 megabits per second. 18 month minimum term. Cut off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus terms apply. On December 6, Sandy's attorney, George McCall Seacrest Jr., known as Max Seacrest, filed an appellate brief containing over 97,000 words to the 14th District Court of Appeals in Texas. As I mentioned in a previous follow-up episode, Mac also submitted a motion requesting an exemption from the court's 15,000-word limit on these types of briefs. That motion was denied, and Mac is currently working on rewriting and condensing the brief to meet the court's word limit. Given the fact that we're talking about a nearly 400-page document, there's just no way to cover it all in one episode. So today, we're going to focus in on the first of three, quote, points of errors cited in the brief. The three points of error are written as follows. Point of error number two. Reversible error was committed by the prosecutor improperly injecting the religious tenets of the Jehovah's Witness religion into the trial of this case in the cross-examination of defense witness Rocio Rieb and in final arguments in violation of the First Amendment and Due Process Clauses of the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution, the Due Course of Law Clause of the Texas Constitution, and Texas Rule of Evidence 610. We'll be covering that point next week. Point of error number three is described as, quote, The jury engaged in misconduct and received other evidence after retiring to deliberate resulting in the defendant not receiving a fair and impartial trial. And then we have the topic of today's episode. Point of error number one. The evidence is legally insufficient as a matter of law in violation of the due process clauses of the 5th and 14th Amendments to the United States Constitution. Basically, in plain English, Mac is stating what we've all noticed over the last few months. There was not sufficient evidence to convict Sandy Melgar of this crime. This is a pretty bold statement, and in my opinion, Mac isn't wrong. There are three basic ways for someone to be wrongfully convicted. Either, the jury just plain and simple got it wrong. This is what I believe happened in Sandy's case. At the very best, and this is a stretch, the state was able to demonstrate through the evidence that Sandy could have killed Jim. But even based on the prosecutor's own explanation of her case, she didn't even come close to presenting a single shred of evidence that Sandy actually did kill her husband. But the jury convicted anyway, based, I believe, in large part to the prosecutor's closing argument where she presented a scenario wherein Sandy kills Jim that was completely contrary to the actual evidence. The blood spatter expert testified that Jim was never in the chair and he was attacked inside the closet. But Barnett demonstrated Sandy initiating the attack from behind while Jim was, in fact, sitting in the chair. Also, there was exactly one person who saw Sandy's bindings before he began to cut her free, Jim's brother Herman. Herman testified that Sandy was bound on her forearms, which were parallel to each other behind her back. But in closing arguments, Barnett demonstrated how she could have bound herself 
at the wrists, again, contrary to the actual evidence. We don't even have to wonder about what the jury was thinking. The foreman has stated in interviews that he and the rest of the jury were back and forth, but at the end of the day, the prosecutor's theory made the most sense, which I suppose might be true, but it had no basis in reality, and is completely and totally contradicted by the evidence that they were supposed to be considering in their verdict. The second way for a person to be wrongfully convicted is basing the verdict on perceived evidence that was misrepresented or even withheld. Good examples of this would be cases like Ed Eights or Anand Syed's. In both of those cases, the state did present compelling evidence that the defendant was, in fact, guilty. In Anand's case, the jury heard Jay's confession, and there was a palm print on the map in Hayes' car, and his cell phone apparently, quote, pinged the tower near Leakin Park. This was, in my opinion, sufficient evidence for a jury to convict. The issue in Anand's case was that the jury didn't have the full picture. They didn't know what we know. They didn't know that Jay's so-called confession was false and coerced by dirty detectives, a conclusion drawn by world-renowned profilers Jim Clementi and Laura Richards. Also, the palm print is meaningless. Anand had been in Hayes' car many, many times, and there were over 20 unidentified prints in the car including one on the rearview mirror. And that's a fact the jury was misled on. The prosecutor, in closing arguments, told the jury that there were no unidentified prints in Hayes' car, which was a straight-up lie. And then there's the cell phone evidence. What the jury heard was compelling, but inaccurate. As we know now, thanks to Susan Simpson, the state withheld information from the jury and the expert witness that clearly stated that you cannot use incoming calls to track locations. And let's not forget about the Nisha call. Even though the evidence was brought out that Anand only ever called Nisha when Jay was with him exactly one time, and that occurred weeks after Hayes' murder, after Jay was working at the video store, the jury couldn't get past Jay's detailed confession that seemed to corroborate the call. The jury was left trying to figure out the case when the state star witness was lying through his teeth the entire time and the prosecutor was misrepresenting the facts. Add to that the fact that we now know that Hay was planning to meet her boyfriend after school, he was alibied with a falsified time card that was forged prior to anyone knowing that Hay had been killed, and the manager who provided his alibi to police was his stepmother. The jury also never heard from Asia McLean, and the defense failed to investigate the track coach's statement that in reality provided the best alibi of all. So in Nanan's case, the jury didn't just convict without sufficient evidence. They convicted based on manipulated, fabricated, and missing evidence. And the same is true of Ed Eights. The jury convicted based on human feces on his shoe, a car seat pushed all the way back, a witness who said he saw Ed driving Elnora's car, a handprint on a towel, a candy wrapper in a trash can, and a jailhouse snitch. What they didn't know was that whatever was on the bottom of his shoe was not Elnora's feces. Pictures of Elnora's car that were not presented at trial prove that the seat in her car was in fact not pushed back. The witness who supposedly saw Ed driving Elnora's car was leveraged by his probation status and his kids contradicted his story and Ed's girlfriend Monica also contradicted it. Then there's the handprint on the towel that was non-existent. Not a single photo exists of it. It was not sent away for analysis. It was actually lost by the detectives and the three cops who claim to have seen it cannot get their story straight even about what day they saw it. Crime scene photos prove that the candy wrapper wasn't even in the trash can during the investigation, and Kenny Snow has admitted that he lied on the stand. 
The jury also didn't know that Elnor's boyfriend's time card appeared to have been manipulated, and the fingerprints on the phone that was ripped off the wall were ignored by the defense. Ed's jury, like Adnan's, did their best with what they had presented to them. They didn't just get it wrong, they didn't have the right facts. The third reason that people get wrongfully convicted is simple jury misconduct. Malice on the part of the group charged with deciding justice. Sometimes it's due to racism, sometimes a concealed relationship with a prosecutor or detective. For whatever reason, occasionally jurors will enter into a trial with the intention of convicting regardless of the evidence presented. That's the worst case, but jury misconduct also comes in a lot of other forms. Sometimes it's something as simple as considering evidence that wasn't presented at the trial. Whatever the motivation is beyond the misconduct, it is a common reason for wrongful convictions. In Sandy's case, we actually have a little bit of all three occurring. The jury did consider evidence that was misrepresented by the prosecutor, and there are allegations of jury misconduct. But before we can get into that, we need to address the most glaring issue. Sandy Melgar was convicted without sufficient or any evidence that she murdered her husband. Even with the evidence that was not accurately represented during the trial, the jury convicted based solely on a theory of how the prosecutor thought Sandy could have committed the murder. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chum. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The largest portion of this appellate brief, by far, is the Statement of Facts section. This portion spans from page 4 through page 271. The format is basically this. Secrets begins by stating the three points of error that violated Sandy Melgar's right to a fair trial. Then he breaks down every single error made by the investigators, the prosecutor, and the jury over the next 267 pages, at which point he circles back to restate the points of error insufficient evidence to convict, prosecutorial misconduct due to using the defendant's religious beliefs against her at trial, and jury misconduct. And this is where we're going to focus our attention today. I'll be referencing back to the Statement of Facts section as we move along, but there is just too much there to cover it all in one episode. We'll be breaking down elements of the 267-page chronicle of missteps as we continue on with this season. Beginning on page 274 of the appellate brief, quote, Point of error number one restated. 
The evidence is legally insufficient as a matter of law in violation of the due process clauses of the 5th and 14th Amendments of the United States Constitution. End quote. Mack begins by laying some groundwork with case law. From the brief. In Jackson v. Virginia, the Supreme Court held the Winship Doctrine requires more than simply a trial ritual. A doctrine establishing so fundamental a substantive constitutional standard must also require that the fact finder will rationally apply the standard to the facts in evidence. A reasonable doubt, at minimum, is one based upon reason. Yet a properly instructed jury may occasionally convict even when it can be said that no rational trier of fact could find guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And the same may be said of a trial judge sitting as a jury. The Winship Doctrine is kind of the foundation for Mack's argument. It's well established that the reasonable doubt standard is the cornerstone of the American justice system. The state must prove to the fact finders, the jury in this case, that the accused committed the alleged crime beyond any doubt that is based on a, quote, reason. Now, this is an incredibly difficult element to base an appeal on, because the fact finders did in fact determine that the accused was guilty without any doubt based on what they saw at the trial. Mack is tasked with proving to the Court of Appeals that, in plain language, the jury was wrong. One advantage that I see in this argument is the fact that after the trial, after seeing and listening to all of the evidence, seven out of the 12 jurors were not ready to convict. Three were undecided, and four of the jurors voted to acquit, not guilty. I would argue, and unfortunately this isn't a legal argument, that those seven jurors and more to the point, the four who voted not guilty were not, as the standard states, convinced of Sandy's guilt by the evidence presented by the government. They were in fact convinced of her guilt by the other jurors after the trial had concluded. And therein lies, in my opinion, the greatest flaw in our criminal justice system, the jury deliberation process. Think about how this works. How Sandy Melgar had 27 years of her life taken away from her. The prosecution presented their case to the jurors. They were able to see everything they were allowed to consider for a conviction. Some things we haven't even discussed yet. And after all of that, three jurors were undecided. They weren't convinced enough to vote one way or the other. That is reasonable doubt. Based on the evidence, something was giving them pause. They were not convinced by the prosecutor. And four of the jurors had their minds made up. Sandra Melgar was not guilty. They came to this conclusion based on all of the evidence presented at trial, which is all they were allowed to consider. But then begins deliberations. The trials concluded and the jurors themselves now argue the case for innocence or guilt amongst each other, the foreman of the jury leading the arguments. Despite what this process looks like on paper, a study of human behavior will tell you, or hell, the life experience of working on any project in a group will tell you, that there are strong personalities and weak personalities. Those who will stand their ground based on their beliefs, and those that will succumb to peer pressure. Colleen Burnett was only able to convince five jurors that Sandy was guilty with the evidence. It was the jury foreman who convinced the remaining seven jurors. Inside the jury room, explaining to them why they were wrong and he was right. Type A personality meets type B personality. And as is usually the case, type A wins out. Remember that sitting on a jury is an uncomfortable task. Jurors in this case spent weeks sitting in a courtroom. 
And once the trial is over, one person's decision affects the lives of the other 11 jurors. They don't get to go home to their families or back to work or on that vacation they've been planning for months until they can all come to the same conclusion. The pressure to conform to the majority is immense. Longtime listeners probably remember when I interviewed the jurors from Ed H's case. One of the women cried during the interview. 18 years after the fact, she was still haunted by the fact that she voted to convict even though she was not convinced by the evidence. She felt obligated to conform because the judge had issued two Allen charges, vowing to not let the jurors go home for the weekend until they reached a unanimous verdict. When I asked her what had changed from the time they retired on Thursday night until she voted to convict on Friday morning, she replied, nothing, and cried. This type of pressuring and emotional response is not at all uncommon, and in fact is exactly what happened in Sandy's case. As the jury returned to the courtroom to present the verdict, two of the jurors were seen and heard crying from the jury box while the verdict was being read. As far as I'm concerned, Colleen Barnett does not get the credit for the conviction of Sandy Melgar. She threw everything she had at the jury and left seven of them unconvinced. The honor of leading the charge to victory for the state goes to Tom Bush, the jury foreman. He was able to do what the prosecution and the evidence couldn't, convince the other seven jurors to convict. Getting back to the appellate brief, Mack moves on to cite Hopper v. State, a case decided by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals in 2007. From the brief, the Court of Criminal Appeals set forth the general legal sufficiency standard required by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. In assessing the legal sufficiency of the evidence to support a criminal conviction, we consider all the evidence in the light most favorable to the verdict and determine whether, based on the evidence and reasonable inference therefrom, a rational juror could have found the essential elements of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. The opinion here cites a U.S. Supreme Court ruling mentioned earlier, Jackson v. Virginia, but I'll loop back to that footnote in a moment. Back to the CCA ruling. The reviewing court must give deference to the responsibility of the trier of fact to fairly resolve the conflict in testimony, to weigh the evidence and draw reasonable inferences from basic facts to ultimate facts. In reviewing the sufficiency of the evidence, we should look at the events occurring before, during, and after the commission of the offense and may rely on actions of the defendant which show an understanding and common design to do the prohibited act. Each fact need not point directly and independently to the guilt of the appellant as long as the cumulative force of the incriminating circumstances is sufficient to support the conviction. Before we move on, I want to quickly jump back to the footnote from Jackson v. Virginia. Quote, If Jackson's beyond a reasonable doubt standard is to have any meaning, we must assume that when the choice between guilt and innocence from historical and undisputed facts reaches a certain degree of conjecture and speculation the defendant must be acquitted, end quote. Now back into the brief. In conducting a legal sufficiency of the evidence review, there is no presumption that a jury acted reasonably merely because the trial court properly instructed them. Rather, the evidence must be tested, quote, to see if it is at least conclusive enough for a reasonable fact finder to believe based on the evidence, end quote, that all elements have been established beyond a reasonable doubt. 
This is essentially stating that once an appeal gets to this stage, the court does not enter into the evaluation of the evidence with a presumption of guilt, just because the jury voted to convict. But aside from the court system, this is a tough concept for a lot of people to understand. With me being in the business of working on potential wrongful convictions, the most common argument I get for those supporting the guilt of our subjects is the old dim-witted argument, this person is guilty because 12 jurors found them guilty in a court of law. The thing is, in order for this argument to have any meaning whatsoever, one has to assume that no jury has ever been wrong. Given the fact that hundreds of convictions have been overturned due to DNA proving without question that the individuals were falsely accused and convicted, I'm still somehow always amazed when seemingly intelligent people make this ridiculous argument. The entire point of post-conviction provisions built into our legal system is to afford anyone who has been convicted of a crime the right to prove that the jury did in fact get it wrong. And this standard cited by Max Seacrest is highlighting exactly that. The appellate court's burden is to evaluate the sufficiency of the evidence in Sandy's case without presuming that the jury got it right. Now back to the brief. A reasonable doubt in homicide actions may arise from the absence of evidence as well as from the evidence itself. There must be legal and competent evidence to an affirmative character showing that a criminal homicide was committed and that the defendant was a guilty agent therein. The point here being that the burden of proof is on the prosecution, not the defense. The Constitution makes very clear that it is not the defendant's burden to prove their innocence. And therefore, when a court of appeals is considering their ruling, they must consider a lack of evidence produced by the prosecution that the defendant actually committed the murder, as well as evidence to the contrary when considering if reasonable doubt did exist. Mack continues on. In a particular importance, all of the evidence admitted at trial is to be considered, that of the prosecution as well as that of the defense. Proof that amounts to a strong suspicion of guilt or a probability of guilt falls short of the legally sufficient evidence mark. Mere presence, as mentioned previously, or mere opportunity to commit the offense in question does not tend to establish proof of the commission of the offense by the accused. This is an important piece of the legal puzzle. Based on the case law cited, namely Winfrey v. State, just being present and having a strong suspicion of guilt does not meet the reasonable doubt standard, nor does, quote, the probability of guilt. Meaning, when the jury foreman states that the pendulum swung from innocence to guilt, but at the end of the day, the prosecutor's theory made the most sense, that does not meet the legal sufficiency requirement. Rather, that falls under the category of probability of guilt or a strong suspicion. Seacrest goes on to talk about motive. Barnett has changed her tune on motive several times over the last year and a half, and, in fact, in her own words, the idea of Sandy's religion serving as her motive, quote, came to her in the middle of the trial. In her opening statement, Barnett said, quote, don't know that I have a motive here, but there's no other way any other thing could have happened other than she just brutally murdered her husband, end quote. Then in closing argument, she touted, quote, the depth of the religious issue as the motive, and she added the life insurance angle as being a, quote, possible motive. We're going to get into the religion issue next week, but let's talk for a minute about the life insurance. We know a little bit more about it now that we've received more documents from the DA's office. Right after a short break, we'll break down the life insurance issue and see how it holds up to the court's standard for motive. Motive. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Although motive and an opportunity to commit a murder can be considered circumstances indicative of guilt, they're not legally sufficient to provide identity. Temple v. State, Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, 2013. While reviewing courts must accord due deference to the trier of fact's responsibility to, quote, fairly resolve conflicts in the testimony, to weigh the evidence, and to draw reasonable inferences from basic facts to ultimate facts, end quote, as a matter of constitutional law, the deference is not total. From Brooks v. State, quote, The jury is free to believe or disbelieve evidence, but after a review of all the evidence by the appellate court, it may become apparent that the jury's ultimate finding of guilt is not rational. End quote. All that to say this. It's up to the jury to determine a witness's credibility, but it's up to the appellate court to determine if the jury's assessment is rational. And how does this relate to the potential life insurance motive? Well, it doesn't. And that's the point. In order for the jury to consider the fact as motive that Sandy was the beneficiary of Jim's life insurance policies, the state needed to prove that, number one, the policies existed. Which they did. There's never been any doubt about that. The very first time I spoke with Liz Rose on the phone, she told me that she believed there were two policies. I had read that the prosecutor had cited a $250,000 life insurance policy, and Liz corrected me. She said there were actually two policies, but they were never paid out to Sandy. The claims were denied because Sandy was a suspect in Jim's murder. After reviewing the documents, it's clear that Jim had a few policies. His work provided a $10,000 basic coverage and a $10,000 accidental death policy. Jim also added on a supplement to that policy. The supplement had a value of $233,000 and would be doubled in the event of an accidental death. Combined, Jim's policies from work would have paid out $486,000 to Sandy in the event of Jim's accidental death. He also had another supplemental policy that seems to have been based on Jim's salary, which was $88,000 per year at the time of his death. From the best I can figure, Jim's total life insurance for accidental death across all his policies would have paid out to Sandy somewhere between $500,000 and $600,000. So that is a fact, no question there. But that doesn't meet the standards for motive. In order to use the life insurance as a legally sufficient argument for motive at trial, the prosecution needs to prove that Sandy actually knew about the policies to begin with. This isn't something that can just be assumed. It has to be proven through the evidence. So to begin with, let's talk about the amount of the life insurance. Five or $600,000 sounds like a lot of money. And it is, but perspective matters. If any of you have ever listened to financial guru Dave Ramsey's radio program or have read any of his books, you know that a common piece of advice he gives is to always carry 10 times your income in life insurance. This isn't to make your spouse rich in the event of your death. It's the amount of money proven to be necessary to maintain your lifestyles after the loss of a spouse. So if your family is living off of a $30,000 a year salary, according to Dave, you should be carrying about $300,000 in life insurance. 
Jim's salary at the school district, not counting the rentals or the Melgar's medical billing business, was over $88,000 a year. A $600,000 life insurance policy doesn't even meet the generally suggested threshold of 10 times his salary. Now, a $5 million policy taken out a month before he died might be suspicious, but policies purchased over a decade before his death amounting to less than seven times his salary is pretty standard, especially for a guy that owned books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Now let's talk about how the life insurance would have changed Sandy's life. Usually, when we see life insurance as a motive, it involves one of two things. Either an exorbitant amount of money, not the case here, or a suspect with a specific need for the money, also not the case here. Jim and Sandy had no debt other than small mortgages on one or two of their rental properties. They had a healthy savings account, investments, Jim was about to retire wherein his pension would kick in, multiple rental properties, and a medical billing business supplementing all of that. Jim and Sandy didn't want for anything. Sandy even had a nice vehicle that she rarely drove anymore because of her illness. They had a beautiful home with plans to maybe buy a house on the beach after Jim's retirement. They were living their best life. Consider for a moment that Sandy did kill Jim for the money. To what end? Let's say she got away with it and collected $600,000 in life insurance, sold her house and the rentals and cashed in on their investments, and there she sits with over a million dollars. To do what with? You heard from the people closest to Jim and Sandy that Jim was her caretaker. She certainly had good days and bad days, but the bad days could be really bad. She relied on Jim to take care of her. So there she is, a millionaire with no husband, no one to spend her time with, no one to take care of her, no future income from Jim, no health insurance, and no one to drive her anywhere. At 53 years old, her health was guaranteed to get worse and not better as time went on. What would she even do with the money? Why would it motivate her to murder the husband that by all accounts she was desperately in love with? And all of that is just a consideration of if the life insurance money would have been enough to motivate Sandy to kill Jim. But let's look back at the actual legal standard. Did the prosecution prove that Sandy even had any knowledge of these policies to begin with? The answer is no. During Detective Carazal's testimony, he stated that he thoroughly investigated the life insurance angle. But the evidence proved that no one from Harris County bothered to figure out when the policies were put into effect, if they were recently changed, or if Sandy had any knowledge of them. It was the defense who hired former homicide detective Billy Belk to investigate the Melgar's financials and the life insurance. Mr. Belk testified that he found absolutely nothing in the age, type, or value of the policies that concerned him as a possible motive in the case. And let's not forget computer forensic expert Eric Devlin. He examined all of Jim and Sandy's computers and cell phones. The interesting thing about life insurance is that most people don't actually know how it works. People base a lot of their knowledge on the subject off of what they've seen on TV. About four years ago, a good friend of mine tragically took his own life. This was my first ever experience with life insurance. I spent a lot of time helping his wife pick up the pieces after his death. My assumption was that life insurance would not pay out in the event of a suicide, because I've seen the scenario play out that way on TV. One of the first things that I did was do some research on the topic, to figure out if we could get his wife any help with the funeral arrangements. I hopped onto my smartphone and began doing research, and found that typically the life insurance will still pay out as long as the policy hadn't been changed within 6-12 to 12 months of his death. 
And that's not the only misconception out there about life insurance. A lot of people assume that life insurance won't pay out in the event of a murder. Again, because we've seen this on TV. My point is that if this was something that Sandy was planning in order to cash in on the insurance, I would expect to see evidence of her researching the topic. To the contrary, Devlin testified that he found nothing in his forensic examination of the computers and cell phones that indicated any interest in or inquiry by Sandy into life insurance, and moreover, he uncovered no evidence of financial incentives in the data he reviewed at all. This evidence, Devlin and Belk's investigations and testimonies, was left unchallenged by the prosecution. In fact, as I'm sure you remember, Barnett spent her time cross-examining Devlin, asking him about knots rather than computers. And then Mac buttons this up nicely in the brief with the sightings of case law on the topic. Quote, The fact that Jaime, as a part of his HISD employment package, had life insurance, which apparently benefited Sandy, is of no relevance because there was no evidence adduced at trial which established that at the time of his murder, Sandy was aware that she was the beneficiary on the policy. It has been the law since at least 1866 that evidence showing an accused motive to murder is admissible only if accompanied by proof satisfactorily showing that at the time of the murder, the accused had knowledge of the facts constituting the motive. Absent the showing of the accused knowledge, the evidence is not relevant and is inadmissible. This section of the brief continues on for several pages, citing point by point every evidentiary element of the state's case against Sandy. And in each point, Secrets isn't necessarily challenging the validity of the presented evidence. Doing so would have no effect on this type of appeal, but rather demonstrating that even if every element of evidence presented was in fact factual and accurate, in some total the evidence does not sufficiently prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Sandy is guilty. The entire brief is published on our website for your review if you want all the nitty-gritty details. But for now, I'm going to read you Mac's summation of his points of error number one argument. I'll be excluding the case law citations for brevity's sake. Beginning on page 304. After considering the entirety of the evidence adduced at trial, both from the prosecution and from the defense, it is respectfully submitted that no more than proof of suspicious circumstance has been provided by the prosecution. Circumstantial evidence presented as indica of Sandy's guilt was more speculative than inferential. Sandy was present at the residence but was in no way connected to the actual crime itself. No physical evidence, including DNA or other forensic evidence, connects Sandy to Jamie's brutal murder, much less proved or even tended to prove the commission of the offense of murder by her. She and Jamie enjoyed a loving relationship and there is nothing in the record to dispute that. The deference that is rightly due a jury's verdict is not absolute. Based on a fair, objective, neutral, and diligent review of the trial record, and even in viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to the verdict, in accordance to deference to the responsibility of the jury to fairly resolve conflicts and testimony, to weigh the evidence, and to draw reasonable inferences from basic facts to ultimate facts, leads to the conclusion that a rational jury could not have found essential elements of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. A rational jury could not disregard or disbelieve the quantity and quality of the evidence that was admitted at trial which raised reasonable doubt as to Sandy's guilt. Simply put, the evidence before the jury, now before this court, was not of such sufficient strength, character, and credibility to engender certainty beyond a reasonable doubt in the reasonable fact-finder's mind. It was more speculative than inferential as to Sanders' guilt. If Jackson v. Virginia's legal sufficiency of the evidence means anything and is in fact rigorous and constitutes an exacting standard, 
Clearly, an injustice has occurred in the present case, and the verdict cannot be permitted to stand. This jury, in the final analysis, reached conclusions based on mere speculation or on factually unsupported inferences. This honorable court is a safeguard and must not hesitate to overturn the verdict when it is necessary to guard against the dilution of the principle that guilt is to be established by probative evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. Before I end today's episode, I need to ask you for help. Sandy Milgar has an amazing legal team working on her appeal. Not only Mac and Allison Seacrest, but also world-renowned post-conviction attorney Kathleen Zellner. While they work tirelessly to take on the legal battle looming in front of Sandy, I think that all of us working together just might be able to help solve this case and bring Jim's real killer to justice. At the beginning of this season, I stated that I believe this is the most solvable case that we have ever taken on. And I still believe that to be true. One of the reasons that I made such a bold statement is the fact that I thoroughly believe that Jim was killed by one person that was part of a team of home invaders. I became even more sure of my theory after Jim Clemente profiled the scene. And if we're correct, that means that there were other people in the house that night that had no intention on killing anyone. Jim profiled the scene to be likely a home invasion carried out by a criminally unsophisticated group, not looking to get rich, but more likely looking to pick up enough cash and small items to purchase drugs. I believe that if we can offer a substantial reward for credible information that leads to the arrest and conviction of Jim's real killer, someone will talk. It's very difficult for one person to keep a secret this big. And it's nearly impossible for a group of people to keep quiet. So, this is our plan. I've created a GoFundMe account to raise money for a reward fund. And I want to go big. I put up a campaign goal of $20,000. But I know that we can do better than that. The intention is to use the fund for both a reward and to advertise the reward. I'm talking about billboards, mailers, emails, phone calls, door-to-door campaigns. We need to make it known that there is a sizable reward fund for anyone with the courage to come forward. I'll speak more about this in this week's follow-up, but for now, the GoFundMe has been activated. If you want to play a part in actively seeking out Jim's real killer, all you have to do is go to GoFundMe.com slash Jim Melgar right now and donate whatever you can afford. If everyone participates, even a little bit, we can easily raise over $100,000 in a matter of days. This is another chance for the Truth and Justice Army to show how we can affect real change in these people's lives and cases. Once again, you can donate right now at GoFundMe.com slash Jim Melgar. And even if you can't donate, at least take the time to share this campaign with everyone you know. The Truth and Justice Army's reach is far and wide. These are our marching orders. Now let's go get it done. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. 
Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.